Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up on today's episode, Eric Braysmith, film professor from the University of Southern Indiana, um, which is my alma mater, if you count um, dropping out twice an alma mater. I don't know if you, there's a requirement for graduation to say alma mater. Um, but first up, what I watched this week, uh, I still have the tri- temporary trial for uh, um, Criterion Channel, so uh, I've, I can't find, couldn't find this movie anywhere else, but in light of Parasite winning Best Picture, which, yay, um, I got around to seeing The Housemaid. Um, it's a, a South Korean film from 1960 that uh, Bong Joon-ho has uh, very uh, consistently cited as one of his big influences. And you could definitely see the par- um, the DNA of Parasite in there. So if, uh, if you uh, have an itch for more Parasite and can't wait, or can't wait for the black and white version coming out, I, I highly recommend checking it out. But um, beginning of the week, I had an interesting double feature over, well, two days to, over so I guess it technically wasn't a double feature, but I drove to um, the Bell Court in Nashville to go see Color Out of Space. And then the next day, um, actually at uh, Eric Bracemith's class, he uh, brings in, he used to bring in a lot of cool 35 millimeter uh, stuff. So it was like Evansville's Revival Theater House for a while. But uh, they've since got, as we talked about later in the episode, they're now strictly to DCPs, but we watched um, Annihilation. And uh, those two movies uh, it very interestingly work together, especially Color Out of Space, um, for being such a low-budget movie, um, uh, it, it's very few of its effects look terrible. Like, a lot of it looks really good, and a lot of it's, it's, a, it's a very digital movie, and um, what, in, in a good way. I, I'm typically, I'm in a minority being a big fan of a lot of digital photography just because of the amount of control and so for someone like Richard Stanley, um, his his control of the color palette, especially in a movie that really significantly is about color, um, it's it's it was just really well shot, really boldly done. Um, and a lot of um, being digitally shot, though, it still felt like a lot of these effects were um, uh, lighting effects and in-camera stuff. And so when you translate over Annihilation, um, Annihilation, it's, I want to say it's the third or fourth time I've seen it. Um, I had been, I had an itch to watch it and it was, it was great that Eric brought it in. Um, I, I had read the book and, um, I don't, a lot of people obviously have the thing where typically a movie never lives up to a book. Uh, I have the opposite thing with Annihilation. I've had this happen with a few other movies where I forgive a lot of the movie's problems because uh, I fill in the gaps based on what I know from the book. And um, I had a friend who was uh, utterly dismayed by my love of Annihilation after I initially saw it, and he had one of those um, talk-me-off-the-ledge-of-enjoying-a-movie kind of conversations. Um, And this is probably my first time seeing it since then. Uh, I I think inherently the movie is just just a gorgeous movie and you know i'm always um i think almost every filmmaker has a desire to make a 2001 in them or former 2001 and this kind of feels uh, alex garland's at least the ending is just just an absolute feast of the senses um is there deficiencies that i uh was blinding myself to probably um but the um the Annihilation didn't necessarily have in-camera effects, but a lot of its special effects were kind of fancy lighting stuff, although there's a lot more CGI than I remembered. Um, and I just, Garland's films are just gorgeous to look at, very uh, sleek, 
Um, he's got that new show on FX, Devs, coming up next month, so I was excited to see that. But um, um, but Richard Stanley, um, I'm relatively unfamiliar with him. I actually haven't seen, uh, I think, Dust Devils, his first movie. Um, and uh, oh, I can't even remember the name of the other one he did that everyone loves. Um, glad glad to listen you're you've tuned into this uh, informative expert podcast um but uh i have seen lost soul the documentary about the making of um island of dr monroe dr monroe which uh is definitely one of those um like lost in la mancha or uh, heart of darkness one of the just great behind the scene just inter- significant one of those behind the scene movies that are kind of probably more entertaining than the actual movie itself um, so Stanley seems like an interesting guy. Um, there's some really great body horror in there. I don't hundred percent think the movie clicked as well as it could have thematically, but it's for the most part, I mean, um, Nicholas Cage does a, does a Nicholas Cage, uh, you know, n- not for realism, but for, is it interesting? You know, uh, he, I, I, I saw it with a friend and we couldn't pinpoint exactly what impersonation he was doing halfway through the movie, but, um, Color Out of Space is going to be out on a Blu-ray release super soon. So, um, I, it, like I said, I don't think it 100% worked, but still, it's still a bold, interesting movie that I, I'd still recommend checking out. Eric Bracemith is today's guest. Uh, he's a film professor for the University of Southern Indiana. Um, he taught me. He... Um, he teaches film lit. Uh, he did uh, at least when I went there. They uh, USI didn't really have a strong production uh, background. The RTF is more geared toward TV, and so um, it may shock listeners to know, but uh, in my late teens and early twenties, I was a bit of a snob and know it all. And I, I'm sure um, many listeners might have just fainted and uh, just because they cannot picture that at all or hear that, um, and are, you know, assuming how, know how much I've changed in that regard. Um, but, uh, what's nice with Eric is that over the years when I would come back to town, more movies I worked on, he was always really gracious and really excited for me and wanted to hear stories about what's going, going on in my, my career. Um, he, um, what, what, he's not, Eric doesn't exactly pride himself on his encyclopedic knowledge. Uh, he's not big into like who's, um, Direct, going through watching every movie from a director, uh, you know, go, watching every bad movie from a director when he knows it's bad, or connecting actors and stuff. What he's more particularly adept at is uh, uh, he's got very keen, sharp, analytical uh, mind when it comes to these movies. Um, he a lot of these movies he's, he's never seen before, that and then he'll watch them twice, and uh, then he'll lecture from there. And he has uh, he's he's got a really good sense of history, film history too, and. Uh, that's mainly the um, form that a lot of his lectures take. I've, I've seen a lot of his lectures over the years, even though I only had the one, the one class. Um, what's also really cool about this talk, though, is uh, my particular, um, you know, question I'm, that a lot of this podcast is for too, and just in general, I'm asking is uh, how much movies mean to the next generation, and uh, you know, with a kind of clear answer where it's, you know diminishing returns on um how much movies mean to certain people and i don't know why it didn't dawn on me but eric's classes um is a lot of freshmen take it and so he 
is a very good source uh, to talk to about what uh, 19-year-olds are, um, how their movie-going habits and, um, you know, the fight to uh, keep them off their phones and pay attention to a two-hour narrative uh, versus, you know, the content they want to, whether they want to binge content streaming or YouTube. And um, it was, it's, it's, he answered a lot of my questions. Um, hopefully this will be an ongoing conversation with future guests, but in, hopefully something will be figured out too. But um, anyway, here's Eric Brisman. So uh, where are you from? I'm actually originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Michigan. I guess I, I thought Ohio came into play there. I went to school in Ohio. Okay. Um, well, I actually went to school in Michigan too, but um, I went to did my graduate work and finished my undergraduate work at Ohio State. Okay. Um, Ann Arbor. How like so? What, I was college town, right? Yeah. 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 University of Michigan. Yeah. So I mean, they would have college theaters there. Yes. Yeah. They would have kind of like my film series, but they'd have a lot of them because it's such a big university. So, you know, you'd have a lot of different. Back then, it was 16 millimeter film, okay. um, and lots of places they play. Plus, of course, as a big college town, they also had a lot of you know art house cinema. So they had they had two theaters right downtown, maybe three really, that would play you know a little more off the wall kind of movies and stuff like that. Not was, just not just mainstream. Was so. that informing your taste pretty early? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I didn't really realize it, but I was a little unchaperoned as a kid too, and that informed my taste too. So it was sort of like whatever was uh was i mean was uh, the art house theaters your main theater or did you have like a mainstream thing early on as, as a kid it's like I, I mean i obviously saw well so so i was born in 61 okay. so so when i'm coming you know just enough to get to to be old enough to see movies on my own i mean i remember one of the movies i went to all the time was conrack with john voigt and I saw that over and over and over, and that was one of the first movies I remember seeing. And that was playing at one of the theaters that became an art house theater, but it was, it's now the Michigan Theater and it playing retro stuff and very, very cool. But it was playing more mainstream stuff at that point because that was a mainstream movie. Um, then during my time, one of them got split and then it transitioned a little bit to some other stuff, uh, you know, where it would be not just mainstream where they'd start doing their early duplexes, but then also within a block or two of that where the campus buildings where they were playing Citizen Kane, you know, and that kind of stuff. They did have a good revival thing bringing they this had, up? They had a whole thing, you know, like, because you had lots and lots of classes that would then run these kinds of series. And so as a kid, that was a little, we knew some theaters were better than others, right? But it, it almost didn't, I wasn't even aware that, like, oh, I'm watching the college school's film series compared to what's also in the normal theater, mm. right? But that's also kind of cool. They, they weren't quite so separate. But I remember at the mall, they played Barry Lyndon, too. So, you know, I mean, it was kind of like, you know. Well, I guess that makes sense. Barry Lyndon was, like, on the um, um, cover of Time, wasn't it? It was a huge movie, right? It was kind of, but it was a mainstream movie. You know, the 70s, people love to make fun of the 70s, you know, for disco and bad taste in clothes. But in many ways. Oh, no. The 70s are. an amazing time for movies. Well, it was, I mean, the American, New, they always call it the American New Wave, um, but also just, I mean, you got to see the uh, best time for American film besides maybe, you know, the 30s, and then you yeah. got to see the beginning of the uh, multiplex, too. Yeah, yeah, it went, I mean, that whole transition, and it, and then coupled with that was all this film history stuff that was happening at U of I, mean, I remember in high school, some friends of mine really got into German New Wave cinema and stuff like that, because we were all playing all over campus. And we would go see those things God, just... and stuff. And I, and I was like, and I remember being confused by a couple of them because I'm like, oh, it wasn't quite my taste and I didn't speak German. And, you know, but I'm like, 
but that's what we went to. They were like, yeah. hey, I want to go see this movie. I like this. Come in with me. I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, question I give everybody. Do you remember your first movie? My first movie. Either first or first in a theater or both. I really don't because I was see- seeing them kind of young. Um, and I, I really, really don't. Uh, like I said, I, I do remember distinctly Conrad being one of the first ones that I went to over and over on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, you know, think about when those movies came out in the 70s. I did see them in the theater. Um, and I remember, I remember, I was just talking about this with someone else the other day. So an example of like early movies that made an impression, but certainly not first, was something like, I remember having a big conversation with someone in eighth grade. I'm pretty sure it was eighth grade. Eighth grade, possibly ninth grade. For me, then that's what, 13, 14. So, so that means then it's going to be 1974, 73, 74, possibly 75 or something. And the big conversation in eighth or ninth grade is about going to go see Harold Maud at the theater. Okay. And um, I'm like, and I'm like, okay, so it was a couple years earlier, but it's still out there and in there. And I remember, you know, seeing that kind of stuff. And also I was thinking, I don't know what that movie was rated, but you know these were movies that weren't quite. Harold Maude, like there's a there's a giant. I've heard this thought about Harold Maude really hits maybe not thirteen fourteen but seventeen year olds. It's like a perfect seventeen year old movie. And that may be, but I do remember seeing it earlier than that. You know, and and that was a big one again, just an, a, one that made an impression. I mean, I remember seeing big ones that I remember seeing that also that were first time in the theater were stuff like, well, I mean, geez, Young Frankenstein and Jaws. I saw those in the theater early on as big movies not my first but certainly you know big ones that that hit okay so it's all that kind of time period and again we started getting cable tv for the first time too when i probably would have been in seventh grade that kind of time period and cable tv had two channels that's where it had your normal channel but then it had two movie channels um and one of the movie channels was this like unchaperoned adult stuff like immoral tales the italian film and stuff like that canterbury tales and, and a lot of this sort of kind of soft core Italian porn art house film stuff. And that was just on there. I remember watching a lot of that stuff too. I saw one the other day on YouTube. I went, oh my God, I remember way too much of this thing. <laughs> I'm like, and then I'm thinking, what age was I? It had to be seventh or eighth grade. You know, uh-huh. so. <laughs> what, do your, what do your parents do? Um, well, it was a single mom at that point, And my okay. single mom was a little, a little out of control. She's a manic depressive. So that's what I'm saying. It was kind of an unchaperoned thing with, you know, movies and things like that. They were, she was trusting of, uh, or just letting you. She, she would, she was partly a little lack of control, but also she was a pretty free spirit, which was the real positive part of that. And did, so, you know, she, she, she likes this stuff. Did she go to the movies with you? Yeah. God, I remember. <laughs> We, she would go to the, some of the films, not not a lot, but certainly she didn't shy away from them. She liked them. Uh, but I remember I remember a particularly odd evening seeing a double feature of Lenny and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and she was having a bit of a, an episode. So it was a very very long night. <laughs> it was a very rough. And again, you know, I'm like, what years would this have been? It had to be. I'm sure One Flew Over the Cuckoo's uh, Nest was very calming for her. Oh my God. <laughs> So what was the, do you remember the first movie where you started noticing uh, technique or that someone was making it? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I do remember repeatedly, uh, I remember repeatedly um, um, Apocalypse Now was one of the big ones with really, really technique. Now that's a little bit later. Um, but I just remember that being one of the ones where technique is one of my big memories of it. 
Um, I remember Clockwork Orange, but I didn't see that when it first came out. I would have seen that because it almost never went away once it came out. When you're in a college campus, it would keep coming back, and it would even come back to the, the art house revivals and stuff. So I have no idea when I saw that repeatedly. But you saw it repeatedly. But I saw it repeatedly at probably too young an age. I've, you know? I've mentioned this on another episode, and I, I frequently say this, but there's this great Louis C.K. bit where he finds out his daughter watched Clockwork Orange at a, a sleepover, and it's like, <laughs> oh, your childhood's over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because you're going... Because I distinctly remember quoting that movie, and I'm like, I'm not sure I understood the right parts of that movie, <laughs> you know? Um but yeah, I'm it, sure that's that happened to a lot of people who saw Clockwork Orange. Oh my god! And I, re- I remember, I remember later on falling in love with American Graffiti. Okay. Um, uh, as 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 a as just a, a just a movie that I, I absolutely loved and adored. And I remember many many years later, daring myself to show it in film class. Just because of the you you had to talk like, about a nostalgic movie for you, but yeah, you had to analyze it. Yeah, I mean that movie's what seventy three mm-hmm. something like that. Um, so I'm 12 when I first see that, and then I see it and see it and still love it. And of course, you know, I mean, I got a soft spot for old cars, and this, the nostalgia of it is so crazy. And yet at the same time, it's also a serious kind of dark movie. But I'm like, does this actually hold up? You know, and when you bring it to class, it's a whole different thing. You know, you've got to look at it as an adult and really kind of do it. And I'm like, and it holds up, which was kind of cool. But I remember doing that with a couple of films I rem- remembered as a kid and, and remembered loving. Um, I know so. recently, like, um, David Fincher was looking mm-hmm. at American Graffiti when he was shooting Zodiac. Like, it's it's from a f- f- photographic standpoint, it's hmm. still a benchmark, even though it's shot on, like, some really dirty um, Super 16 or something like that. Oh, but. Well, they, were, they were, like, it's, like, one of the first ones really shot beautifully at night. I mean, it was an incredible achievement, which I didn't realize at the time. It just looked beautiful and amazing. But, you know, given what they were doing with the technology, and, you know, it's not... It's not a dark night kind of thing. It's sort of a romantic night almost. Right. The, uh, it, All the neons. Did you did yeah. you did you show a print of it or DCP? I think at that point I think it was a print, a film print, a thirty five millimeter film print when we got you, it. No one talks about this, but Lucas has tinkered with American Graffiti. Like really? one of the um I always point out the first well, Lucas, of course he tinkered with it. Yeah. The first shot of the drive in, I was I I used the phrase ILM sunset. It has an ILM sunset where huh. they changed out the background. It was just like a flat orange background. Okay. And, yeah, yeah. And he put in a bunch of pretty clouds in there. Um, so, um, when did, uh, was it photography was the main thing you were, you were in as a teenager or was it filmmaking? Um, it was a little of both and, and that was hard because, uh, I mean, I enjoyed cameras and that kind of stuff. And of course it was 35 millimeter film cameras, still cameras. So I was shooting a lot of that and doing a little black and white and even with my grandfather in the bathroom had developed a couple pictures, but you know, but so later on it kind of taken to that and filmmaking, you know, as it, as a kid in the 70s, you don't have the access to technology that you do now, right? So when you, you think about filmmaking, it's it's a long, hard struggle, right? I mean, Super 8, if you're lucky, and it doesn't have sound, and it's, you know, okay, and it's a little 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 jerky. So, so photography had a much more, I don't know, important role, or, you, you know, when you, when you did photography, it, it had a much higher status almost than saying you're going to do film on an amateur level, right? They were, they were much more co-equals, whereas now photography seems like a, almost a means to an end and everybody does some movie stuff too because they're, they're so interchangeable. They're, that wasn't the case. Everything's on the smartphone now too. Right, exactly. So that wasn't the case. They were separate things. So I remember doing a lot of photography because you could do that and kind of doing that sort of seriously. And then I liked making little movies, but they were, you know, you knew they weren't quite as, you knew they weren't good. 
you know, you knew they weren't going to be brilliant. You knew they were subpar because they were super eight. You didn't have money. You were doing what you could. You know, you're editing on a little plastic editor, right? You know, you didn't have any of this access to the technology that, that really kind of kept you back. So I played with that a little bit in high school, and but it was more of a lark, whereas photography, I wound up actually doing some professional photography a little bit more uh, easy and a little more quickly than, than the filmmaking. But I went to school in biology my first year. Biology? Biology, yeah. I was a biology major my first year. I went to Michigan State. And um, I even was in a residential science and math college, which is kind of ironic because I was a terrible student. I was a terrible student in high school. I was just like, I barely got through. You know, one of my oldest friends uh, was, uh, amongst the three of us, would be the least likely to have been a college professor, and he teaches grad school right now. I wonder if, the, is, there a, is there a recurring? You know, it kind of happens. And, and Maybe with the humanities, too? You know, I don't know. Some people say it's because you were sort of bored with, the, with school, and I'm like, I think I was just a bad student. I mean, I, I was a little, like I said, unchaperoned at home. That kind of translated into. Eh. So when, when did you switch majors? Um, well, I went my first year, and then partway through the first year, I realized I'm being tracked for uh, tracked for being in a lab and that kind of stuff, and I don't like that. And I had liked filmmaking. I kind of even toyed with that idea, but I thought, you know, that's a little impractical. Um, again, kid from the Midwest, I thought, I don't know, you know. So it seemed a little pipe dreamy, so I didn't do it. Well, partway through my first year, freshman year, I kind of had this realization again: I don't like labs. Ohio State at the time had a dual major in photography and cinema. So I'm like, well, those are the two things I've been working on. That's perfect. And they also had a production unit that was documentary-based that was part of the school. So they did some hands-on practical stuff. So I thought, well, okay, this is a Big Ten school. You, you know, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity, and that seems like a good practical focus rather than, you know, me saying I'm going to go out to the coast because I was like, I'm... You know, that's intimidating. I, I was not ready for that. Uh, I'm, you're talking to a stu former student of yours who didn't go out to the coast. So yeah, I... yeah. So you understand, you know. And, and so I'm like, okay, did that and actually got a chance to work in a, with a lot of commercial filmmaking. Like f I got tracked with um, not feature films but uh, commercials. And my first teacher in my first class, my first semester at Ohio State when I'm taking like a beginning filmmaking class. And again, it's Super 8. Um, but the teacher there was a cinematographer for one of the production houses in Columbus, Ohio. And one of the gigs we got was to work for commercials for the governor and to do the travel and tourism commercials for Ohio. So, um... Were, um, were those uh, decent budgeted stuff then? They were pretty decent budget. I mean, the travel and tourism commercial for Ohio, we shot in 35mm film. And we traveled all over the state. And I was just a production assistant, but... You know, he liked me, we got along from the first class, and he's like, I work here, and I'm like, okay. And at that time, you know, back in the early 80s, you know, it was 75 to 100 bucks a day as a production assistant, so it was great part-time work as a student, right? And um, and again, I got to travel all over the state, and, and I'm messing with 35 millimeter cameras, and you know, I'm doing the grunt work and carrying cables, but I'm still watching the production, you know, and getting kind of that sort of exposure to that. So that worked out. You know, that worked out pretty well. In fact, okay, this is a little weird aside. Go. Just the other day, I'm watching, God, what was the film? Um, same director, same guy uh, who did um, the, the the VP film. Um, um, God, I'm terrible with this because it's the middle of the semester, so I can't remember. Adam uh, McKay? Wait, the... Oh, 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 okay. The guy's name, the guy's name, he's assistant director, and he's he works consistently with this guy. 
Um, I meant to look him up. Anyways, I'm watching the end of a movie. I see this guy's name. I go, Matt Rebenko. I'm like, okay, he looks... I said, that's a weird name. I said, I used to work with that guy. So he was the other production assistant that was hired by the guy. I think you told me this yes, story. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, I, and so then a friend of mine just said, wait a minute. You know, name's a name. She pulled up some production photos from the thing and showed me a, a, a shot of like five different people. I'm like, oh, well, that's him. She's like, yeah, that is him. So, so he's been assistant director with uh, this guy, and he's done a lot of his films. Um, and uh, so anyways, the, the idea was at least some of the people had kind of gone on and done some connections and done some of that kind of stuff. So I got a little exposure to work with some of the early techniques of that. And I, I mean, I got tracked differently in a lot of what kind academics. Of, what kind of stuff were you doing in college? Uh, you mean in, on your own? On my own, um, he did films. Uh, um, we they tried to emphasize documentary a lot there. And when I was in Ohio State, it was just beginning a transition from shooting on film again, mostly Super 8, uh, but he did productions in 16 millimeter. And as a student, you you could barely afford to do that, right? And you just didn't have a budget. You didn't have any ways of working through that stuff. So they were just doing the transition to video, and they were using three-quarter tape. They were starting to get just starting to get some cameras. Even our first early cameras were still tube cameras and not chip cameras. Wow! You know, um, so I've got this long kind of just small little thing I did that was all feedback with a you know, <laughs> feedback with a camera. I put tape designs on a monitor and would zoom in and out and do this kind of stuff, and it looked like stained glass windows. And oh, I'd, play, I'd play monks over it. Only in college. <laughs> exactly. Like it's, it, it's, but it's so good, isn't it? It's yeah, uh, it still it was, hits that spot. It was beautiful. It was just I had that when I did my show. I, I had that sort of playing as people entered, right? You know, just so it was kind of like it was like a little cathedral, and you'd have these Gregorian chants playing, and you'd see this video stuff. So, <laughs> what did you do after after college, or initially? Well, um, I kind of was lost for a little bit. So yeah, I was like, oh, and I realized I hadn't hadn't done enough writing and literary stuff so I actually took I re-enrolled as an undergrad in English for my first semester after graduating oh and I'm like that was a, you know because that was almost like self-punishment <laughs> I'm like okay what did I really not enjoy and do the least of but let me do that I even took out student loans and did some of that I'm like okay you're either desperate to leave or something but during that semester it turned out a couple of the TA positions opened up at Ohio State to teach beginning filmmaking and go to grad school in, in film. So I'm like, well, I'll apply for those and see what happens, right? Because if, if you got it, right, they waived your tuition and they gave you a stipend for teaching. So I'm like, okay. And sure enough, I got it. And so that's how I kind of wound up in grad school because I had had some other friends who graduated and they started moving to the coast and I was kind of going to go after them a little bit. But um, that, that worked out and then uh, taught the beginning filmmaking, got the degree, and it was a little more, and I kind of did a little bit of film theory and production, but again, production was awkward then because you didn't have the money, so you were trying to scrape together stuff and doing some, I did some documentaries, did some sort of commercial film, did a personal project, but you were really shooting video more than film. My film projects, I didn't even finish editing them. I had some rough cuts and stuff because I shot some 16s, um, but it was difficult, you know, it was difficult to finish, and then there also wasn't quite the, um, 
well, there wasn't there wasn't quite the film festival culture then either, so it was much more difficult to even get seen, and you know, so it was a, it was a very different ball game than this. It this would have been before uh, Sundance had its big breakout. Yeah, um, this would be. Um, I graduated in '83 and then graduated from grad school in '87. So, yeah, like they, I mean, there's some big things from Sundance, uh, but I mean, they always say that it was a uh, sex lies videotape, or the year before then, I think was. Um, well, I mean, uh, Blood Simple did well at uh, Sun. Right, Sunday but you're too. talking big budget movies, not the thing you're going to make on your own. Sure. You know, that's it. Sure. And so, so um, you know, I did projects that were student kind of things, and then again, you know, kept working uh, with the this was called the Media Group in, in Columbus, Ohio, and um, and then also at the time I met my wife, so she was in art history, she was working on her PhD there, and then we both graduated about the same time, and. We moved first to Los Angeles because that's where she was from, um, and kind of just sort of it was kind of a almost living out of suitcases in Los Angeles for a little bit. But I had a, I had an LA driver's license for a while. I, you know. I didn't I didn't know you were in LA. I was just for a little bit, and um, just again kind of looking around with friends, kind of sort of almost as a holding pattern. She was applying for grants, and she then got a grant grant to go study in Berlin, and so we then left and went to Berlin. So how long was how long was LA? LA was not maybe a few months, six months. I don't remember exactly because it was basically the time graduating, having a place, and then leaving for Berlin. Um, and then in Berlin, you know, I was kind of I, I took I knew that was going to happen. Actually, I knew Berlin was going to happen before I graduated. I forgot about that. So I kind of did a self-study crash course in learning German because I didn't speak German so I'm just like trying to run through the language tapes at the language land of Ohio State as fast as I can. You you hit before the wall fell? Yeah 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 so it was so you know an amazing experience to live there inside that weird island I mean you were locked in and you know that was that was bizarre. Well I mean so um in your, so what were the big um, movies? Your first off, going back to college too. Or initially, sure. what were the big movies in college that were are, um, either inspiring you to keep in your work, or just the things that were keeping the, okay. the flame um, going? I graduated in '79, so my first year was '80, um, and I remember Stardust Memories came out. I think around that time, that was a, a phenomenal film. I loved that film. I, I, I was always an early Woody Allen fan. Um, well, I should say almost like mid-period Woody Allen, not the earliest, but. But you know the Annie Hall and that kind of stuff. Um, but Stardust Memories, I absolutely loved. Of course, Manhattan, I loved, and that, those were sort of the key ones because the nervousness of wondering what you're doing and that kind of stuff. But also the freedom in the filmmaking when he's doing the Fellini stuff was amazing. And in fact, my first screening of a couple of films didn't go well. So I, I remember in my next films, they were written. There were places in it where it's like in the middle of it, someone's getting a critique and they simply fly up and out of the air. And I'm like, that's also in Stardust Memories. I remember all my friends were like, you can't do that shit. And I'm kind of like, he did that shit. I can do that shit if I want to. <laughs> so were they saying great. you can't do that just because it was, it was the formalism was it? Yeah, or was it, was, it was unreal. It was too stupid. And I'm like, I'm like. Not because you're t- you're deliberately taking from Right, it. right. Yeah, it wasn't because you're stealing. It was, you know, um, or appropriating perhaps. So. Um, but no, it was just kind of like, no. You know, they were trying to, you know, they were trying very hard to learn how do you make a serious feature realistic film, right? Because that is really, really difficult. And, and boring. Well, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, back then, it's like you want to learn how to do it first, right? Because most students are, are, are shooting like, okay, I'm just recording it. I'm like, you're not recording. 
I do. I do remember this. Like one of the things I know early on with editing, you got to get out of your system that you uh, can do something that someone else has done, and then that doesn't necessarily make it good. But you can you understand a technique. Exactly. You want to learn the technique, and 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 I mean, especially in school early on, you really wanted to learn physically how you make this look professional. Because you got to remember back then, right? You don't have the equipment to make it look professional. You're trying to how is it getting professional as much as you can? And it was a different it was a different kind of thing, right? I mean, geez, now you got a gyroscope GoPro. Yeah. Right? You don't have any of that stuff back then. All this connected to your, your phone. I know would I always find it fascinating when I'm talking to uh, people who've never been around bigger budget stuff and I really haven't been around much, but I've seen some. Mm-hmm. There's this odd imposter syndrome from everybody because they always think they're not doing it right, and hmm. it's it's very liberating once you've seen it where you're just like they're they everyone has imposter syndrome at some sure some level sure but yeah especially if you're pushing yourself that's almost the nature of the beast yeah if you're trying to do something new or interesting um, but m- more movies from the '80s would uh, were keeping well up. okay I mean I remember distinctly um, uh, Stardust Memories was an amazing one that kind of stuff um, I, while I'm in grad school one from the heart came out with Coppola. Okay. Um, and I loved that film, loved that film. And, and again, mixed reactions to it. Um, but I distinctly, you know, kind of remember that. Is Coppola a guy for you? He was a good, yeah, he was a good guy. He sort of becomes so normal later on. But certainly his his um, 70s and early 80s were pretty, you know, dramatic trying to do stuff, you know, in his creation of the American Zoetrope and all, you know, the studio system and Tom Waits would appear in things. And, you know, I mean, it was like, that was really kind of cool. That becomes kind of mellow by what Garden of the Gods and or no, what was the Gardens of uh, Stone? Yeah, yeah, the, like the that, yeah. Ja- I, that's what the, the James Conn Vietnam one. That's like one of the only ones I haven't seen. But like I, I have found had a fondness rediscovering like um, a lot of the mid '80s Coppola. There's, I mean, even if they're not as grand, and he's not trying to be, you know, the, the new Griffith. He's a good craftsman, though. Yeah. See, I mean, I really like early Lucas, but I find Lucas, once Star Wars starts, I think he's lost his soul. And, and, and that, is a, that is a great tragedy. Like, there, yeah, there was... Yeah, I saw it, he was a brilliant filmmaker. I saw this article a few years ago where, you know, Lucas kept saying forever that he's like, I'm going to get back to do my early avant-garde uh, tone poems mm-hmm. things. And uh, I was, for a year ever, I thought it was going to happen. And there was this Walter, Walter Murch said in an article, it's like, yeah, it's not going to happen. No, no. Well, in his early films also... You know, you always try and read backwards how much he collaborated with his wife, you know, as the editor and stuff like that. But clearly that strong female personality informs up through the first Star Wars to come out, right? He he ditches that and he gets nasty in the backlash. It's kind of like a dark, it's kind of like a dark male backlash the more he goes on, too. And so he's not, I mean, I confess not having seen all of them, but, but he's he loses that charm. Because one of the big charms about some of the stuff that goes on is these, you know, is these characters that are interesting, and and the characters, and even like in American Graffiti, I haven't even thought about this, but in, in American Graffiti, the female characters are there, but in some ways they're trying to fight an oppressive system, and that's part of the charm is these characters, right? Whereas he kind of loses that sensitivity after that, you know, Star Wars Episode Four, whatever it is, the first right. one, you know, because, um, and it's all, you know, everybody gets sidetracked by special effects and gets sidetracked by nuances of stories and bizarre, stupid named characters that interact with God knows what, right? But the real hit of that movie was the characters. Right. And the characters were male and female tough characters. And part of the fun of that first Star Wars was the tough princess. Nobody had seen this tough princess, especially in this old-fashioned style very much. So, so that was really cool. Well, he just erases that within a couple of films. And it's like he just... And then he starts fiddling, and then he's just sort of rich, and I, you know, it's really disturbing what happened to him. 
Yeah. Um, when did uh, um, when did politics start coming to play? Whenever you were uh, paying attention to film. You know, I mean, you think about watching Apocalypse Now and Clockwork Orange in the early 70s, it's like politics is already there. I, you know, I think it's always been something that... Everything's pretty saw. entwined for as yeah. far as I remember. Yeah, especially, again, in the 70s, you have escapist movies, but you also have very, very dark movies. Oh, I remember another film I loved was Pennies from Heaven with Steve Martin. Oh, man. I showed that to a friend of mine, and they're like, oh, my God, you're killing me with this movie. This is so bleak. Have you seen the uh, the uh, miniseries? The, no. The original? No. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I, I had a period. It would have been right after uh, I left uh, college. I was uh-huh. really into Dennis Potter and uh-huh. uh, um, Singing Detective. His that's that's really good too. But he huh. like basically there's six part or three or six part miniseries that really? expand all that. And um, but it's the guy who wrote it. He was really big cool. with the BBC. Um, but um, so um, we watch we we watch movies in Berlin. Yes. Yeah. Because again, my language skills were crash course, and so. You know, I think about a moody sort of like wandering the cold streets of Berlin inside the wall and kind of late at night and dark and kind of pessimistic and broody. That's kind of what it felt like a lot of the time, except it was during the day and I'm riding the bus. But it was, you know, there was a lot of just like, I didn't have anything to do. You know, she was studying and all the time and saying, you got to get away from here or in the library. And I'm like, so I would wander the streets of Berlin or ride the streets of Berlin. Um, just to explore it, which was fabulous, though. It sounds a lot of times. Um, so it was amazing. I mean, I know the, the western part of that city just really, really well. And um, and then they played a lot of films. It was a big, big, big film town. And they, of course, were very big on showing them in their original version, so in the English version with German subtitles and stuff. So I would see a lot of films. Um, and they ha- they still, to this day, have tons of theaters all over the place and still show a lot in English and that kind of stuff. So it was a huge film town. So, yeah, I would see lots of stuff. I saw, I remember um, seeing uh, The Belly of an Architect by Peter Greenaway there and just absolutely loving it. I'm seeing it right on the Kudam in downtown Berlin. And, you know, again, people walking out sort of scratching their heads, but it was a cool, cool movie. Was that your first Peter Greenaway film? That was not my first Peter Greenaway. First Peter Greenaway was um, Draftsman's Contract in Columbus, Ohio. There was an art theater just east and stuff and saw that there. So. Were you, because, uh, I mean, Peter Greenaway, is he, it one of your favorites? Or? Yeah, yeah. He sort of, you know, has fallen away because he's not making films as much anymore. Um, he's still doing art projects and stuff. But but so once moved on to other things. But, yeah, looking back, he, he still is, in fact, actually um, kind of reviving and looking at his head and two knots this Friday Night in the Forum series this semester, actually, going back to one because I'm like, you know, I kind of miss that. And you think of how old that film is, but it's still going to be interesting to Do you see. St- are you going to have the same uh, thing you have with American Graffiti? Where, uh, uh, I mean, you're not really teaching in Friday nights in the forum, but right. you are talking it through. Right, but I don't have to. I don't have to go through it as much in depth. But um, no, it's those movies I came to as an adult. So uh, you know, I don't have the worry of like mm. my naive 13 year old self thought this was a brilliant movie, and oh my god, it's hideous. It's you know. Or it's like, well, it's like Clockwork Orange. You see a Clockwork Orange very, very early. You're going to quote a lot of the movie. The things you're quoting are hideous things that droogs are doing, which you really shouldn't be thinking are interesting. And yet you're not really approving of them, but you're so fascinated at the characterization and the world this has created that you're like, you sound like a really evil cretin. <laughs> I mean, you know, and that's the problem. So it's the fear of like, oh, American Graffiti is great. It's like, well, God, what if it's really juvenile, stupid, and really nasty to the women without, you know, I'm like, how is this actually going to play? You um, you brought this up the other day. Um, did you see Wings of Desire in Berlin? I did. 
I did. How was that? I did. That was fabulous. Because you're like, oh my God, they're filming right outside. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I also, yes, yeah, so a couple others like that too. But yeah, Wings of Desire, that film, they are shooting at the time I'm in Berlin. That's that's really the time period. I think they shot the year before, but that's really what's what's going on. When uh, So did you get back before the wall fell? Yes, actually. Um, we moved... I t- it t- we actually... I, the, the California thing also was after coming back from Berlin, but I came back early from Berlin because we ran out of money, so I went back to Michigan. Um, so then there was... Our stuff's in California. I'm in Michigan. She's in Berlin. And then... Uh, there's a few months of house sitting to try and find a place to live in, in Ann Arbor where we're kind of like, I'm sort of half in my little sister's room in my parents' house and then house sitting wherever while, the, while she's job applying because she, as the academic, it was harder to find a place to, you know, so uh, she got the job here and, and we moved here for the start of fall of 89. And so then- She came here first. Well, she, we both came, but she time, got the job. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that's when we came here and then the wall went down, you know, right right you know and in that time period in fact we had a friend of hers who was east german which had been very hard to visit and and stuff had planned to have her come and speak here in evansville and suddenly it's like uh you need to come down here and look at this i'm like the wall's coming down it's like why don't you go get her own ticket you know i mean it was crazy so so yeah the timing was 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 pretty amazing she kind of disappointed we weren't there to see it come down because it was close i yeah seen uh, history and apparently um did you um did she come to usi mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. yeah so um what did you I mean, how long was it before you started teaching at usi part of the deal with enticing her to usi was um tom wilhelmus at that time was teaching the film class and um he was assistant dean and you know in on hiring so part of the negotiation was well you know, is there something for me to do? And he's like, well, what can he do? And it's like, okay, well, we've got this film class and photography. So I was teaching photography and the film class uh, really since we first moved here and have been teaching the film class since 1989. I stopped teaching photography a few years back, but... That was my next question. When did you stop doing that? Um, I'm trying to think, probably at least 10 years ago now. Um, it, it was. Were you teaching it when I was there? I was there I'm in the to remember. early aughts, 2000. Because I taught a couple of pickup summer classes for some documentary classes and have taught some other classes, so it, it kind of runs together in your mind about when that was. But um, yeah, it's 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 been a little while. It was it was well past black and white film being <laughs> viable. I mean, we had to stock it uh, in the bookstore because you couldn't buy it anywhere. You couldn't have it processed anywhere. That kind of stuff. So um, you know, it was it was well into that time. Did but. you did you start out in Form One? Yes. Mm-hmm. Did they did they have the thirty five millimeter there? No, sixteen millimeter, smaller screen, uh, sixteen millimeter, and the first thing, a couple of years in, I was able to get a couple of, um, they were um, Army Navy projectors, which were uh, really he- rugged sixteen millimeter, but they had been retrofitted with these Italian xenon bulbs in the back. Really, I mean, and they were the the retrofitting was from the sixties, so like you know the rubber starting to crack on these things, but. They at least gave a bright picture for 16, and we had some scope lenses on the 16, so we could sometimes get scope prints and, and do it. Uh, really difficult to, to make it all work, but we would do changeovers with two projectors. Well, actually, I would do that. And then finally, we started getting some projections in to help with that. Um, and then eventually, there was another remodel that was going to happen. There have been a couple of remodels in Form 1, and one of the first remodels um, they wanted to, you know, fix some certain things, and that's when we managed to get the money to say, all right, let's put in a 35 millimeter system and build that screen that's at the base of that that room, and dedicate that room to film a little bit more, so we can do that. Because at the time, the, 
I mean, the film classes taught a lot more people. We had three sections eventually and stuff like that. So, uh, but because of the room remodel, we could get a base 35 millimeter projection, which you were so familiar with. Yeah. You know, and, uh, but the screen remodeling came at that same time. And then eventually then there was another room remodel and a redecorating and they wanted to build a theater in Carter Hall and some other things, or um, forget which, maybe the first remodel was Carter Hall, but then there was gonna be another remodel and they're gonna put in another film theater. And we're like, let's upgrade this to, uh, to um, I'm sorry, the first 35 was, was in an upgrade uh, that to keep them from having to build a film projection over in Carter. The second one was a room remodel and we worked with APB and Cinema USI to say, you know, you're starting to show more and more films here in 35, which they were doing, and it's cost effective, let's get digital um, so we can stay more current. Is that when the DCP came in? That's when the DCP came in, that was 2012, I think. Okay. And um, I mean, we got so lucky because it was practically like we got it just before, just as, I think Fox was the first one to announce they were doing no more, no more film prints. Whatever it was, whenever they forced that, we had already made the decision to go ahead and do that. So we were just ahead of the curve. We got so lucky with that digital transition. So, And we were first gonna keep the 35. What, our, what was the logic of getting rid of the 35? Just because of no prints? Um, I, I really didn't want to give up the 35. I mean, I wept when it left because I was so attached to it. You know, you, you know the connection. You right. know? Um, but then I'm like, okay, if we don't get rid of the 35, first of all, the, the best, the best uh, position for sh putting the projector is taken up by the 35, which is kind of weird. And then I thought, you know, the prints are already hard to come by. They're not going to get any easier. And I'm like, Let's and once I learned also that we could we could upscale Blu-rays and stuff through our projector, then I thought, all right, let's go ahead and 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 just do it. Let's just commit to it. And oh my God, within six months, it's like that was the right decision. Hmm. I mean, the thirty-five just dropped off the face of the earth within a year or two, right? You could you could you could buy a platter system for ten bucks off eBay for the whole platter system, recycle the aluminum. I mean, it was crazy. Wow. I well, there was a period, uh, mainly in the late uh, aughts, where I, I worked in a theater that switched to digital, and I mean, I, I held, on, held on to the 35 uh, like everyone else, but sure. I do remember whenever uh, digital color timing came in, mm -hmm. um, uh, it's it almost like it was already digital, like because yeah. I because mean, I mean everything was just very um, high contrasty. Uh, the blacks were all crushed on it. It already looked digital, even when the, you were getting these prints just printed off of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we were getting prints that, yeah, that, yeah, the blacks were just way too dark and inky, and you know, we're like, God, at this point. Yeah. Well, so I'm hearing that you've you've been in academia for pretty much most of your working life. Yeah. So yeah, ironically, what was it? Um, what was? Did you have a rude awakening with the students teaching students films at any point? Because um, I mean, we often talk about. I, I don't know if we talk, I've talked to you a ton about this, but the when I was there, the class had that reputation of being like, uh, and you fought against it of like the free A right. that everyone right. could sleep through to right. watch movies, and you were very adamant about that. That this is not that class. Yeah, it has the opposite reputation now, which is actually well, causing, it, causing it, me it, trouble. It didn't have that. I, I don't think it had that reputation. I remember you were freaking like, you're not. This is it, and but you get these constantly indifferent students in there. You well, I mean, first of all, uh, it, it's a lower level class. So you're getting a lot of freshmen, right? So freshmen, you know, they are ill-prepared for what college is like, right? Because they're basically not high school. And high school was like, you're going to pass no matter what, you know? Um, and not that there weren't brilliant students there and great students and people who loved it, right? But, you know, it was across the board because it was a huge, 
number of students. I mean, at one point a few years ago, I was teaching three sections of 150 students in each section in one semester. You know, and it's like, good lord, it was 10% of the university every year. I mean, it was crazy. Wow. You know, I mean, you think about that many students. Um, so you're going to see a huge range. Um, but so then the feedback you get, because the, the good students go, yeah, this class was easy. And hopefully they also go, as a lot of them do, yeah, this class was fun and I really enjoyed it, right? But the bad students are the ones that aren't prepared. They're like, it's a stupid movie class. I don't have to do squat. Or they say, I don't like that movie. I'm not coming to the lecture. Well, we don't use a book. Well, you know, I mean, the films are the text, so you don't come to lecture. It's like, what are you going to do, right? I'm not going to ask you a book report about what happened in the movie, which is what they think is going to happen. So then they go, well, damn, this class is hard. I didn't expect it. I'm like, you know, I mean, you just, you just, you want to be nice to students, but you also want to shake them. Well, because you, <laughs> you constantly are finding the student that has the, um, I don't want to think about this movie, it, and, or it gets yeah. mad at the movie for making that. Making them think. Yeah. Or mad at you for saying, you're reading too much into it. I could say anything. I I Get feel like, I feel like I remember hearing some of those. That's, yeah, I'm sure you did. Um, I I I think I've told you about this before, but one of the best um, film experiences of my life was seeing Chinatown in Form One, mm -hmm. and because it was already a favorite movie of yeah, mine, yeah, yeah. I knew it. Yeah. And you 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 get you were used to these these classes where they were just kind of um, you know checking off their ticket after they got done with the movie, but. Yeah. Um, Chinatown worked for this room and they yeah. didn't know what they were getting into. No, they didn't know. And, and palpably the room just sunk lower <laughs> and lower. <laughs> they got a little shocked. You could feel it. Yep. It was amazing. But I mean, do you, I mean, do you get a lot of like um, the whole room feeling that way on some screens with like the movies clicking with the. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's also surprising what movies don't click. You know, I'm like, there'll be times when I'm. I mean, I think it's funny, so I'm laughing, but I'm deliberately making sure I'm laughing out loud because I'm trying to tell them it's okay to laugh at this because they don't. They either don't get it or they don't think it's funny or hopefully just are, like, shocked by it. Well, what are some examples of movies that did and didn't work? Well, of course, this is the problem, right? Because, as you know, right, I'm so steeped in the semester, I can't even remember what I showed last semester, so oh, that's a problem. Right. Um, but uh, there have been a couple recently where, again, that just happened, where I'm like, oh, my God, this is, this is funny, and they're just like, what the hell? You know, what, do you remember from this semester? Uh, it hasn't happened quite this semester yet. That was last semester. And to tell you the truth, I don't remember what the darn movie is. Because, again, you know, there's each week you're so steeped in that one movie, it, you have to make everything you're concerned about that movie to really to know it well enough to be able to teach it for two hours in front of a room full of people, especially if they're trying to catch you on something. So, you know, right now I'm steeped in Annihilation. <laughs> Yeah, so we should mention that we I was I came in and watched uh, the second class, uh -huh. which is is no one in that class or right. There's no second section, but I do a second screening for those who want to come, and so we don't get a lot of people there. But I'm like, damn it, we have rented this print for 800 bucks, and I need to see it a second time anyways. And then it's available, and also it was a way of keeping the slot open in case we do go back and add a second section because we've gotten we've gotten close to wanting to do that, but they just keep upping the possible enrollment in the first section to make it. There's potentially 225 slots in one section, which is just a miserable room. Um, but that's what they've done instead of having two sections of 90 to 100. So, I mean, I know our mutual friend, past guest, Ted Haycraft, he's mm -hmm. always admirable about your ability to pick up on subtext very fast. Did, I mean, <laughs> was that something that you, I mean, is academically trained in you or is where your where your brain goes naturally now with movies? I think I think it, I think it's both. I mean, to to say I wasn't trained in it would probably be uh, 
falsely, you know, not giving credit to my education. You know, um, I mean, I did take some classes where we did do that, and um, you know, so so clearly that was part of the training. I don't to say that was really sort of driven in as part of the training isn't really there because I was actually trained as a filmmaker rather than a film theory and film that makes sense kind of person. Um, but I do. I mean, I like. I kind of approach the world that way. I mean, I do like to think about, well, wait a second, what's behind that, or what does that mean? And that's probably the beauty of growing up with a mother that was a little less stable. You always had to read the room differently, and you always had to look for what's behind this and what's the motivation. So I think I just look at things that way, and that has that has served me well in the film. So, you know, Ted, Ted is a great film person, and he he is a dedicated film person, and I admire his stick-to-itiveness. His problem is he gets distracted by all the firing connections, you know. So, so when he sees somebody, he sees, oh, they were in this film, this film, this and this film. And they, when he sees a shot, he sees that's a, that was in this film, this film, and oh, I, I make the. So he spends a lot of his time making that connection, which is great, but I think it distracts him from getting to the core of what's there, and and he can do it, but he has trouble because he's so distracted making these other connections. So I don't have those distractions, and so he likes hearing that I'm kind of going, well, wait a minute, what's at the heart of this? What is the point? Well, you know? one of the admirable things specifically he talks, it's not so much that you analyze stuff, it's that you analyze it very fast, you pick up on it, but is that just the watching it two times? or? Um, I would have thought that, but then, of course, all the Friday night in the forum, I'm watching for the first time with the audience, mm. so... I always feel like I'm doing a poor job up there talking about this stuff, but then I get a lot of feedback from people saying, no, I didn't catch that, and no, that was very helpful for what you said, and I can't believe you saw that. So I'm like, well, the evidence would say it probably comes a little more easier for me, but I mean, you know, I'm more practiced at it by teaching the class than other people are, right? Mm -hmm. and, I, and, I, and I have much more at stake, right? I mean, I watch a movie a little more desperately, so sometimes over the summer, I'll watch a movie and go, oh my, thank God it's not Tuesday or Thursday. <laughs> Just not Because I don't have to. I'm like. I think there's something there, and I can't figure it out. But I don't have to. <laughs> um, when d you wrote for the Courier for a bit, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I wrote movie reviews for about a year. Just a year? Yeah, yeah. They, um, it was partly transition. Partly also, they, um, I think they got a little frustrated because I refused to say whether the movie was good or bad. I, I absolutely fought with them on that one all time. The time. At, one time at Showplace, um, they uh, we when we checked the movies on Thursday night, the manager asked me to uh, write notes, and mm -hmm. I think in a practical sense, he just wanted to know people to tell um, uh, the managers to tell the theater goers what they were doing. But I, yeah. I remember writing a very quick, pithy capsule review of Jackass, the, the first Jackass, uh -huh, uh -huh. and the next morning he came in and just goes, "But was was, was it a good, good movie or not? That's, that's all I want to know. That's all they want to know. And that's really what they want to know behind the review. And I'm thinking, okay, they sent me to see John Carpenter's Vampires. And I'm like, I hate this. This is nasty. This is a misogynistic, creepy-ass movie in a genre I do not like. So what am I supposed to say in that review? Right? Can you say, you can say Do that? I just kind of say, I hate this? I mean, because what they really want to say is, is it good or bad? Which is already a false thing to say. You cannot say if it's good or bad. John Carpenter's Vampires, if you want to talk the morality of it and its treatment of women, it is a hideous, bad movie. If you want to talk about, did it make money and is it kind of fun for some people and is it an interesting joyride, it's a good movie. So you already have a conflict. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, so much of the uh, the newspaper model is, is fought under the uh, fight between reviewing and criticism and reviewing is primarily just, you know, consumerist like... Uh, it's a shopper's guide. Shopper's guide. That's it's a shopper's guide. And that's a good purpose. 
you know i mean that's what i try and tell students i'm like it's a shopper's guide and i know i just insulted those of you who really think you're doing brilliant work i said but a shopper's guide is useful we need to know when to spend our time and spend our money maybe now where time is just be too much content's out there too much content yeah, yeah. Um, so, so what I would always do with John Carpenter Vampire is I was always going to say, all right, it does this, and it does this sort of thing, and it does this kind of stuff, and I would try and pick out some of the subtext of what it did and kind of that kind of stuff, and then I would just sort of leave it neutral, and I, would, I never had a rating system. I never said if it's good or bad. I tried to avoid whether I liked it or didn't because, of course, I did not like that movie. And so, but I'm like, well, first of all, I'm not writing this for anyone, right? And anyone, you know, I mean, anybody who's going to see this doesn't give a damn what I think about it because it's not my kind of movie. And then anyone who's maybe reading the view to kind of learn about it, well, you know, I mean, it, why are they reading this? I'm like, well, they might be reading this to find out something interesting. And I'm like, so my job is to pull out something interesting from this film, not tell them what it's about, not do that stuff. But that, that, that was difficult. That was a difficult fight with the so newspaper. That they just eventually, like... Eventually we got, yeah, they got tired. Plus they didn't pay much, so I wasn't really, didn't really fight to stay on too much. But, yeah. When did the uh, Tri-State Cinema Society start? Ooh, I don't remember. It's been quite a while ago. Were you an inaugural member, or...? Yes, I wasn't a spearhead for doing that. Really, Dane Hill was one of the main ones for that. Um, and then, of course, Ted was involved in that, and uh, David Fritz over at Henderson Community College. Um, and uh, Nancy Peters, who's since passed away, she was a local artist. Uh, we were kind of the core group for doing that kind of stuff, and we would trade off leading a discussion on Thursday nights with the films that were brought there. But really, we would we would take some of the ticket sales, use that pool the money to then rent the film, and you know they would give us space and then you know some return on something. So uh, it was a it was a truly cash-strapped, unfunded operation. I mean, we didn't have grants, we didn't have support. It was truly, can we make it, can we make enough on this movie? And, and we would have flyer folding parties and all that kind of stuff to keep going to the next movie. How so many years did it go? Several years, a good, a good decade. Um, and then fortunately, you know, things became a little more successful. Um, you know, I started doing the, the film series out at USI, even as I think is kind of a compliment to that, because we didn't have that at the time. So yeah, the timing's a little vague because it's been so long ago. But that was, uh, that was really it. And well, I mean, I remember when I tell people about uh, Evansville outside of town mm -hmm. um, theater going. I, I remember for the longest time I could brag like Evansville does have a 35 millimeter revival. Thing, yeah. Just but it was through the university coming in. Yeah. We, we got you. You brought in some really interesting. Yeah. I, I remember uh, I worked for you for about either one or two semesters, but uh, as a projectionist. But I still remember. We got the print of Frankenstein, and uh -huh. uh, there was um, there was two reels. One was a freshly uh, um, freshly made reel, and the other one was the old one. Uh -huh. And the splice point or the uh, reel changeover was at a different spot because of the scene. Yeah. The scene yeah. was put back in, yeah. so that part doubled up. The scene where the uh, where Frankenstein drops the girl into the river. Right, right. Yeah. Like, oh, that's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember if we tried to cut that out or not afterwards, but. Um, um, we didn't have time to preview them because it was one a week, you know, with with the with all that schedule. So it was sort of like, uh oh, the first showing was odd. <laughs> um, so over the years, uh, what is um, how much more fight have you had with phones and your students? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's difficult. Um, yeah, the phones the phones are, are are nightmarish, and I've got quite an quite an ogre reputation because I'm not tolerant of that at all, and I'm like. I can get away with being a jackass about it because it is a classroom. And I'm like, I'm showing you your text. 
you're not buying a $150 film textbook. Your, re, your, your text is being shown to you and you need to know it and you need to watch it intently. And so I kind of try and get them into that mindset where it's like, the, the point here is not to just see what happened. I said, the point is to study this, right? And to study it, you have to have no distractions. And so I'm like, phones are the first distraction, as well as the fact that I said, you are blinding the people behind you and being rude, but nobody seems to take that to heart. They don't seem to care about that. Or they seem to think that doesn't apply to them or they're hiding it well. But I'm like, okay, since you don't care about your neighbor and you still want to flash it or you just think you're so important that you have to have your phone on, um, I'm like, we're going to have no distractions in here. I'm like, there is no food. You are not taking notes during this movie. You're going to put the table down. You put your phone away. And on the syllabus, they now have to kind of agree that I will take their phone if it comes out during the movie. And I do that. Wow. And, and I'm like, you know, you can imagine what happens when a student suddenly sees their phone disappear. I said, I, he said, I'm going to take it. He said, you're giving me permission to take it and to turn it off for the rest of the screening. And so they're, you know, so they're sneaking a text with their friend or something like that. I'm like, you're suddenly going to go blank. Your friend's going to think you're rude and not respond to him because I'm going to have your damn phone. <laughs> and it happens. Now, ironically, that's been getting a little better. Um, it was worse a few years ago than it is now. Really? Yeah, and that surprises me, but I think they're sort of used to, you know, they started growing up now where in high schools and whatever, they put their phone on a, you know, a, a, a thing on the wall or something. I think they're starting to get used to the idea that, yeah, I'm sick of always being pestered by people. Um, you know, some of them are true addicts and they can't, they can't do it, but I'm like, then you take a different class. I don't need you in here. And they'll test you on the first couple of weeks and, you know, if, mm. if I'm fast enough and get, get to a few of them, then that usually tells the rest of the room you better not. Do you, have you noticed a trend uh, one way or the other in, um, I don't know, people's, um, are, are, are students less interested in films or are they staying the same level? I think they're less interested in films. I, I think the part that hurts me is in the last few years I've started to come to the realization that I'm starting to teach a history class like theater rather than a contemporary class like film because and I mean this is where Ted will start to attack me and said but the you know the the action hero movie is now what a student who's a freshman thinks is a movie okay and that's a certain genre and it's fine for what it is and they're certainly well made for what they are but they're bloated they take over everything and they're very formulaic and again for what they are they're great and they're even kind of fun but you know they're not the deepest thinkers they're they're you know they're mind-numbing punching action for 45 minutes at the end where frankly I want to take out a phone you know and um, so okay so they that's what they go to the theater for because they're expensive so they think movie is that then I'm like okay well they're watching movies at home right because they've got Netflix and that kind of stuff it's like that's not really what they're doing they're watching YouTube and that means they're not watching TV serials because again television is so good now you know as you know you you, you know a a well-made TV series is like a long movie, and its biggest problem is it's bloated to get 24 hours in rather than when it should have been 12. Right. Um, but it's still great filmmaking, and it's intelligent, and it's really cool. Well, they're movies, and if you've got a huge screen that's not too far from you, it's getting to be a similar theatrical experience, except for the communal part. I, I thought someone, or actually it was uh, one of the past guests, uh, Ben Fritz was trying to tell me that um, his kids specifically are more into binging and so yeah. I've been trying to pay attention to that with my nieces and nephew watch them like uh, 
Like I'll ask them about. It's weird because sometimes I'll ask them about a show and they get just as excited as like I know I was as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And then you get to a show or a movie they're unfamiliar with and they shut down really quickly. Yeah, I, I mean, the big thing is there's no common there's no commonality of culture anymore, right? I mean, you know, it used to be like three channels, and then it used to be commercials, right? And and for better or for worse, because it was usually people hated this stuff, but they could quote it or they knew it. Then there were the, the big movies that everybody saw. And so, okay, TV started fracturing with cable, but there was a difference between that kind of half hour, an hour program that was weekly, even if there were a gazillion of them, and then the big movies that were both big events, but also interesting things where they were sort of testing before they went to TV. Well, you know, you know, in the last few years, that's kind of reversed. Some of the testing, cool, edgy stuff is on TV and not the movies, because the movies are so expensive, they're getting more formulaic and more Marvel Universe and more kind of thing. Not all of them, but well, what the I main don't, ones. What I don't understand is, like, when you look at something like Game of Thrones or um, I forget what, what other good example of that, like, they aren't necessarily that much cheaper. They like game oh no yeah that that I mean they're putting so much especially some of the HBO stuff like the budgets are very comparable to the big Marvel movies but especially with Marvel now going into streaming too absolutely and and you know I mean look at some of the I mean even in the Academy Awards just uh, a couple of days ago they were they were talking about um, you know a couple of the studios were like what HBO or Amazon it was you know you were like these are you know these are not traditional movie studios right yeah. um, do you uh, has the fight for black and white changed with students. Do they still? <laughs> they still moan, uh, but the biggest moan is subtitles. You know. Oh. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. You, they'll, they'll they'll say which movie did you like the most? Which movie did you like the least? The one they like the least, the one with subtitles. They don't even know the movie. They just say it's subtitles. Uh, well, I I I try to not pin it down to like people just don't like movies right before they were born. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and some people explore it, but sometimes even five years after they're born, they're not in it, as interested into it. But. Well, you know, I mean. At the Oscars, uh, Billie Eilish and I forget her, br- her brother's name, uh-huh. but they were talking about movies from their childhood, and they were talking about old movies like uh, Social Network and Moneyball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of horrifying. Yeah, you're like like classic films like from the 2000s. <gasps> you know, <laughs> but it, you think about it. But they're they're raised now on Disney animated movies. That's that's what that's what kids see growing up, which. They always used to do a Disney movie, but there's so many of these animated ones that they're actually kind of better than a lot of the live-action films. That's the staple of what someone grows up with as a movie culture. Then, when they get edgier, I don't know what they graduate to, but eventually then the comic book movie stuff starts coming in. And there's so much of that. It's, it, it, again, it's like, and, and even, you know, even the Star Trek reinventions and stuff like that, or those, or, or a Star Wars franchise, starts to reflect that same formulaic kind of kind of style. So it's kind of like, well, so movies are this thing rather than movies being, you know, the variety of stuff that you know is out there. It's just that that's not what people go see. I the, I know one of the biggest questions I keep thinking about is uh, not going back because I think a lot of this debate tries to like a lot of things go back just try to make movies as vital to people as they were in the 70s or like mm-hmm. when we had the three networks mm-hmm. and it's pretty clear that, that we can't get the can't genie back that. in the bottle no. so moving forward it's like how do we what is the way to make um, uh, quality of content uh, and sophisticated storytelling on our YouTube what is the format for that what is the form of that going to look like 
I don't know, because YouTube is a short-form format, right? I mean, part of the reason I think they watch so much YouTube is because it's it's like the whole thing is only 10 minutes. I mean, you know, there's the, so much of that variety. I mean, I know there's, there's a lot of different things, but, you know, there's a there's kind of a short attention span aesthetic that's that's in there. Um, you know, part of, ironically, and it, I don't think this is just snobbery on my part, but one of my goals for my class has started to be making them watch a movie because they're not used to sitting through a movie and they're especially not used to sitting through a movie without some kind of break or distraction and whether that's a phone or whether it's at home getting up and getting a snack or whatever it is and so I'm like you're here in the theater you're here with other people that you have to be polite to you're going to sit and watch this thing start to finish in one chunk and the benefit of that is going to be that you're going to see the pacing and the thought process that the filmmakers put into this thing and you're going to see this unit well, what, what happens? Or is it just the, the, the antsiness comes out? No. Well, I mean, certainly it's an adjustment for them. But, you know, that's where my ogre personality comes out. I mean, I'm just such an ass about it. They're just like, oh, shit, we better not. You know, so, so they watch, and they wind up going, huh, that was interesting. Even if they don't necessarily like the movie, they go, huh. You, I, I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's weird, it, and, and I don't think I'm just reading this into it, but they seem to kind of appreciate the full sort of, introduction, complication, you know, denouement, all the whole stuff, things that are happening in these movies, they seem to kind of go, it's almost like it's a new experience for them because again, they know the formula of a Marvel movie. And even people who love Marvel movies go, yeah, well you just don't pay attention to the last 45 minutes where they just do video game beating the shit out of each other. And so even they know, clock out, right? But in these movies that I'm trying to show them, they can't do that and I think they're like, huh, I was engaged for two hours, you know, kind of like when they go to a play that they like, they go, I can't believe that I actually kind of was into this, you know, they know not to misbehave in a play because it's live, right, they don't know to do that when watching audiovisual stuff because the TV is always on at home, so you have to talk over a TV and stuff, so they've kind of learned to not respect the screen, but you put them back in the theater, put them on that big screen, and you tell them, put your damn phone away or I'm taking it. Then they go, okay, I better respect it. And then the benefit is they go, wow, I concentrated. That was kind of cool. Hmm. It was the, when they're seeing like a, a non-action Marvel movie on a mm -hmm. big screen, does the bigness get to them? Or is it something they're just used to already? I, you know, I don't know. I haven't really asked them. Uh, so I don't, I don't really know. Certainly, if they're not used to the theater, you know form one screen is pretty damn big and it's pretty loud. So certainly it, it, it gets to them, though. It's funny, look at how many students love to sit way back in the nosebleed to make it look a little as much like TV as they can. It's weird. I'm like, sit down front, people. Come on. So um, um, what, when these kids are, um, what do you see them getting? these kids getting out of YouTube? See them getting out of YouTube? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I have a love-hate thing with YouTube because on the one hand, it's fabulous because it's not um, – it's not formula and money-making driven necessarily. I mean, every, everybody says, oh, well, you're on YouTube to make money. It's like, not everything. Everything on YouTube has a purpose, but it's not necessarily to make money. Um, usually it's someone wants to maybe show off about what they know or share information or something like that. So when people are selecting things on YouTube, there's kind of a really personal connection and focus that's really kind of cool, right? You want to learn about a certain weird engine? Go on YouTube and find it. You can't do a movie about that, and it's difficult to find a book that might do that. Um, but it does kind of create a, well, it's all about me and all about, you know, anybody can do it and everybody's doing it. So 
um, expensive production versus cheap production are all kind of equalized on YouTube, which is kind of weird, and it kind of it democratizes it, but it also cheapens the really difficult production stuff. Do and you do you have any insight to what what kids in particular this age or uh, why they why they're into that? Why they're into it? I I don't know why, but um, it certainly be is their focus. They don't they don't seem to watch larger movies they want little small segments they can watch them on their phone they can do it at their time and it's sort of a quick consumption kind of nugget thing and that might be the main reason they're into it other than you know thinking again well hey I could do this too and you know as you know most people can't make a good movie even technically let alone all the rest of the thought that has to go into making something well there's there's also just uh, like the la lack of technique, like the, when they go from TV to movie versus like uh, ca a QuickTime file coming straight from a webcam, stuff like that. Is but that seem that that level does does is nothing seem, for them. They seem partly oblivious to that. They seem partly oblivious to it. And again, if you watch a really crappy video on your phone, right, it looks a lot higher quality than you know because they don't project it on the big screen, right? They don't go, oh, this looks awful. I mean. It, there's a there's a problem in thinking. That one of the things I fight is 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 the focus of attention, right? So so like with my students, I'm trying to say you're going to watch this film with no distractions because you need to intensely focus on it, and you need to make some effort, and you need to then make an effort to pull out all the effort that other people put into it. Well, you know that's different than the YouTube thing because it's effortless. Y it appears effortless, and since so many people do it, it doesn't require the effort that a feature film or a well done television program or something does. I mean, if I'm being honest, a lot of my I, so mornings when I wake up and put on YouTube, um, I want something as a distraction in the background a lot of time, too. Well, and that, that may be, right? But still, it's like, well, but you're still, that's your main content. You used to turn on the TV. Yeah, that, you're, you're talking to a pretty happy cord cutter here, though. On yeah, that yeah. No, but, I mean, I hear you. Yeah. Um, but it used to be that, that, okay, TV was in the background for news or even a program that you didn't really want to watch, but you wanted something there. You might... You might play a movie, of course, but since you and I love movies, if a movie's playing in the background, you're going to sit down and watch it. You're not going to just have it in the background. I mean, you know. So now, you, like you say, it could be YouTube or something like that, but you also, YouTube can often, you can, you can dictate the content. You can focus on what you want. And that's very different. There, there is that, and I mean, like, the democratization of it. Um, the, I mean, there's so many, um, um, there's, Podcasts are on there are great. There's, there's so many speakers, the TED Talks, all that stuff. Like there's there's just a, a dearth of like easy it, like it, it it goes into this like uh, you know years ago I read Barry Sonnenfeld said that mm -hmm. uh, he thought 90 minutes was the average or good length for a movie because mm -hmm. supposedly that's the length of an REM cycle and that's why mm -hmm. features interesting go that length and but no I mean I I don't know if that's true or I yeah I'm, that sounds a little too arbitrary well it's very arbitrary but it's also just it's clearly not playing itself out in the diminishing returns of film going for the younger generations it's it's a constant fight where I'm like I'm not wanting to um, like storytelling is going to change storytelling is going to change and the, in, in every new generation the human brain works around storytelling so right. they're going to find different ways to tell stories and, and meaning is something every gen generation has to fight for right but there's also this fight uh, for us of like you know make it the '70s again, make make movies relevant, make movies the thing people talk around water coolers again, and not just Marvel movies too. Right, because now it's just that. But but to me, it's the attention span, not so much the content and the subject. So so the thing with YouTube is 
now you know the things you just quoted on YouTube are often almost like radio programs. They don't need to be on YouTube. B very true. Right. Yeah. So so I'm thinking more something you actually have to watch on YouTube. Um, so, so well, it also goes into the um, um, the uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan hot cold medium. Like it, YouTube is a very passive medium medium too. Yeah. It can be it's something you don't have to engage with. Right. Right. But 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 I'm thinking like okay. You know, when when people are watching something and their their visual attention is focused, then uh, that's where I'm kind of like taking the equivalent with a movie, um, as opposed to one where again, a TED talk's illustrated, so you might want to watch that. So it's hard to play it in the background because you want to watch it. But if it's just the talking head TED talk kind of thing, then it's a radio program, and that can play in the background while you're doing something else visually. But um, but to me again, they they're looking at something that could be very intense and very cool for eight minutes. And then they're like, I'm complete, you know, or, and a lot of these YouTubers, especially the format is so personal. It's kind of like, I've discovered this about the pyramids and this kind of stuff. And they give it to you in eight minutes as if that's the equivalent of reading a large book about it or watching an hour documentary on something like that. And then that starts translating over into, can they concentrate for a feature film, right? Which a true feature film is designed to be seen from beginning to end and it builds and it focuses where Again, if you're not used to that, it's it's a weird format. And even if you were to watch network TV with commercials, that's a that's that's a small act structure. I do I, one possible hopeful thing I keep looking at is I, I feel especially I had this problem with movie making in general, where um, three act structure or the formulas mm -hmm. um, really take over, and so the peop the gatekeepers who decide to, to make movies becomes extremely risk adverse, and then sure. the, and the formula has gotten very very uh, got a stronger stranglehold and very specific, and um, I've always argued that something as free as YouTube has the potential to like. Uh, like if you have a play that's like just a great right. monologue, then that's but you get to watch someone deliver it. That may be more compelling than um, I don't know. I don't want to keep dumping on Marvel because I very much do like sure, Marvel movies. Sure. But um, or like you know Gene Siskel used to have the um, his barometer for a good movie is uh, is this movie more entertaining than having lunch with the same actors in the movie? <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, but the thing is, okay, when you watch YouTube. Where do you watch it? Do you sit down on the couch with all the lights off and focus on the screen? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, but not usually, right? Usually it's on like that small computer over there or it's, it's a small LART kind of thing. And already with that, there's tons of distractions all over the place, right? It's a different kind of focus. Well, the, the, the invention, this, we're getting into the invention of the smartphone and what it's doing, fracturing the human brain, too. Right. Like that's, that's, and that's part of it. That is, that is you know, such a quick thing that's happened to um, humanity, and stu the studies of it are just nascent right now, but Absolutely. are pretty, pretty devastating. What, like, um, I know I, one of my favorite books on this is called The Shallows, and mm -hmm. they talked about reading a New York Times article and how many, mm -hmm. um, you know, on, in, on the web and how many constant things they're putting in there to distract you from it to like yeah even even responsible else. hyperlinks that you're thinking oh i should learn more about that you're like i haven't finished the first article yeah right. it's a very frustrating format it's it's definitely weird for um i mean i mean uh, they, the studies come out that smartphones adversely affect uh teenage girls more than anybody else too probably because of the cultural problems and baggage that, that they have, I can imagine. Sure, but I mean, and just general, like you, you see in the kids, what it's doing to their anxiety levels. Like in, kids' anxiety levels are going up significantly. Well, you can see it in your friends if you really pay attention, right? I mean, can they look you in the eye and have a conversation? 
not all the time because they're getting dinged or they're getting vibrated or they're like and they're always some excuse about well this is an important call I have to take this one it's like okay but don't expect me to give you attention when you won't give it back that cuts to the bone man yeah. that's yeah I just I don't know what that means for the um, future filmmaking or film like I guess I mean that's the main reason Ooh, I'm talking to talking to people that's I'll tell you you know like I said I was trained as a filmmaker but I think what I do now is more important I really like making movies I spent a lot of time editing back on film and stuff and I really kind of like that kind of stuff but there's too much stuff out there from people far more talented than me but I'm like but there are not very good watchers out there and they don't they're they're not only don't watch a film they not only don't watch a film very well they don't know how to start watching it very well even something they like and so I'm like listen I one of the things I do is try and give them permission that, okay, first of all, you're going to be confused by a movie. That's okay. Don't bluff your way through it, right? Because everybody goes, no, nah, that was stupid. Like, no, it wasn't. Just admit that I'm not getting this. You know, I mean, start there and then, and then focus on it. And then how do you maybe go into it, right? What intrigues you and how do, we, how do we just spend time with it? So I change the films all the time, not because they're the best movies, but because the, the point is to go deeper into something that was extremely difficult to do, whether it was Life of the Party or whether it was, you know, a, a deep Greenway film or whatever it is, going deeper into it's the key, not, oh, this is the best one, I just gotta see it. It's like you just, it's, it's the mental focus of getting deeper into it, that's the key. And that's a hard one when people take in smaller segments and have constant distraction. Those are the two things that fight that. I mean, think of how little you, you know, you're unusual. You read more than a lot of people. A lot of people, it's like, oh, I mean to read more, but I don't. Well, it's Be free time I have right now. But yeah, but but it's also, or they read, but they read on the computer, but the computer isn't really the same kind of reading. Yeah, I I, I have, I definitely have that. I, it's, it's a, like you said, it's hard not to be snobby about that. Because, I, I mean, reading, is, it's a hot medium. It's hard. You have to, I mean, you've got to sit down and, um, you know, set goals to finish something and yeah. it's, it, reading can be challenging but challenging books but um i don't know but I, it's the deep dive it's the deep dive that's the key well it's it seems the deep dive teaching kids that is pretty um it's pretty fundamental work though so that's good you're if you can do it with movies it's a little easier <laughs> <laughs> I, I i guess that's that's all i got right now i think <laughs> okay sure well yeah. this has been fun all right well eric raceman thanks for being on the podcast my pleasure thanks Shane. Thank <laughs> you.